0: Thank you, Greg, and those that serve with you every single morning to uh, lead us in preparing our hearts for the Word of God and to preparing our minds for the Word of God and to preparing just our spirits for what God has to say to us this morning through the Holy Spirit. So thank you, Greg, and thank you um, for the ushers, and it's good to see Cale taking up the offering this morning. and. Uh what a blessing it was. So I hope you have a Bible with you this morning, and I want to ask you to turn it on, especially open it up. That would be my preference for you this morning, but open it up and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you came in this morning, there should have been a bulletin either, either door when you came in. There's some notes in the back of that if you want to reference that during our time together in the Word. But 2 Peter chapter 3. We have been walking through um, the whole book of 2 Peter together as a church. Uh, Several months ago, we went through the book of 1 Peter, and now we're back into 2 Peter, and just walking through it systematically, verse by verse, and and what the uh, letter has to say to the church today. So, And I've told you this before, you've heard me say this before, when you come to the book of 2 Peter, it's divided up in three different chapters. The first chapter, Peter spends the majority of the time talking about our identity in Christ and who we are. He's writing to a early church there in the first century. He's writing to a young church. He's writing to an immature church. He's writing to a church that is in the middle of all kinds of pagan worship, all kinds of pagan idolatry. There is all kinds of false teachings, heretical philosophies, ideologies I talked about last week, the Luciferian theologies and ideologies and philosophies that are out there. And this early church is surrounded with all of this godlessness, They've got all these different voices saying, well, you need to do this and you need to do this. This is right and this is wrong. This is true. This is false. And they have all of these competing voices and influences in their life. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them and to tell them, yes, there's a lot of voices and yes, there's a lot of influence. And yes, there's a lot of ideas out there, but not every idea is from God. And so you need to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And so he spends the entire chapter one talking about their identity in Christ. And then he gets into chapter two and he talks about the dangers that the church was facing. And I believe these are still dangers that are present today. Dangers of false teachers. Dangers of false prophets. Dangers of Almost truths, but aren't quite the 100% truth. Dangers in following people more than God. Dangers in trusting in man more than they do in the Savior. And So he talked about these dangers that the church was facing, the dangers that was going to be impacting and tempting the church around him. And then you get to chapter 3. And he starts talking about the hope that the church has in the days in which they live. And sometimes the danger is when we come together on a Sunday morning and we just take one portion of Scripture Sunday after Sunday. Sometimes you can leave on a Sunday morning and you're like, well, that was just a downer. All he did was talk about the negative. All he did was talk about the bad stuff. All he did was talk about the gloom and the doom. The the problem is, is when Peter is writing this letter, it's intended to be read and intended to be heard in one setting. So if you're going to do it in a first century way, we just come in and we just go through the entire book until we get through. But the most of us don't have the the kind of appetite for that. And so you've got to break it up. So if you've been sitting here for the last three or four weeks and going, you know what, Spence is just a negative person. My intention is not to be negative. My intention is to say, be on guard. My intention is to say, watch out. My intention to say is there is a Satan, a Luciferian theology out there in this world, and he is a hundred percent negative, and he is trying to get our hearts and our ears and our minds. So we need to be on guard. But then we get here to chapter three, and he starts talking about the hope that we have in God something for us to be excited about, something for us to be encouraged about, something for us to go home and saying, oh, it is such a blessing. It is such a privilege. It is such a wonderful thing that we get to be called children of God, that we get to be God's church. So he's going to talk about, we're going to break this time up in, in several different sections, but he's going to talk about this morning, he's going to talk about the hope that we have in the Word of God, the hope that we have in the timing of God, the hope that we have in the, the promises of God, and then the last Sunday that we're going to be together, he's going to talk about the hope that we have in the perseverance of God. He's going to say, there is all these hopes you have today as a church. Now, I realize that you and I could look around the landscape and we can say, oh, that's bad. That's bad. That's a bad... That's an obstacle. That's a hindrance. Oh, the church is in decline. Evangelism, baptism, they're on the decline. The giving is on the decline. The missions are on the decline. Everything is in decline. Oh, the church is capitulating. The church is compromising. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa is me. And we can start playing chicken little, running around, thinking this guy is falling. So what Peter's going to do this morning in the course of the next several Sundays is he's going to come in, and he's going to write to them, and he's going to remind them, yes, yes, you have challenges around you. But do not let that overpower the knowledge of God above you. So this morning, he's going to talk about the hope, the hope that we have in the word of God. Now, before we get to that and before we start there in chapter three and verse one, let me just try to hopefully set some landmarks uh, to kind of think about where we're going to be headed through this entire chapter. And I think an overarching theme that Peter is going to try to drive home is he's going to tie this back in to chapter one and talking about our identity. See, we have a struggle today in the identity that we hold to. And too often we have people today that place their identity in man. Either they, they place their identity in their job, they place their identity in their possessions, they place their identity in a relationship, they place their identity in something that is earthly, something that is temporal, and something that is fallen and as long as your identity is built and founded in those things in this world then you're going to constantly be trying to pursue and your hope will be in those things in this world but if our identity this morning as a church is in Christ then that should manifest itself out by the world seeing a different hope in us not a hope in the politics not a hope in social policies not a hope in the outcome of our children, not in the hope of my promotion at work, not in the hope of building this new project or reaching this new academic milestone. No, no, no. When the world sees the church have a hope that is in God that is not built upon this world or man, though church or the world, I'm sorry, will see a difference in the church. So Peter is writing and he wants to encourage them. And he's going to say, let's make sure your hope is in the right thing. So if you look at me there, uh, normally I try to read the entire passage in one setting. We're just going to break this up just for uh, hopefully it flows better and we can uh, follow along. We're going to start in chapter 3 and verse 1. And I just want to point you to this morning, just you see there in your notes, just three assurances. Three assurances that, we give, that, that Peter is writing, giving us today. Three assurances when it comes to the days in which we live. Starting in chapter 3 and verse 1, if you'll follow along as I read aloud, listen to how Peter writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he's acknowledging the saying, I've already written first Peter. Now I'm reading second Peter or now I'm writing second Peter. I'm writing this to you, not because I have a fault against you, but because I want to keep reminding you. I want to keep encouraging. I want to keep putting this before you. I think of it in the way that a lot of times husbands and wives that will constantly tell each other, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And you may say, well, what didn't you have it? You already said that. Doesn't they already know that? No, but there's something to come when you continue to remind and encourage one another. Sometimes you think, well, he's always is preaching the same message. He's always preaching the same sermon. We always need the same message that Jesus loves us, that God has forgiven us, and that we need to repent and submit to God. There are some messages that are timeless in their application. So Peter says, this is now the second letter. And why I'm doing it, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And then he starts, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I want you to notice with me, the very, very onset of this, Peter wants to remind them that they have a hope. They have an assurance in the life they live today, and the assurance is that God has spoken. That God has spoken. He wants to remind them. He wants to remind that early church. He wants to remind those early Christians. He wants to remind those early believers. And I think by an extension to you and I today, he wants to remind us that God has spoken. God is speaking as we'll see in a few moments, but he wants to remind them that we do not follow a religion of a mute idol, a mute deity, a mute God. You go and you look at the, the uh, religion of, of, of Buddhism and you have these Buddha figurines that people will set up. And when was the last time that figurine ever spoke? When was the last time that you have some of these other false religions and they have some of their gods? And some of these, that God only spoke to one person. And then that person spoke throughout their, throughout um, the, the time that that person served. But when it comes to the religion of Christianity, we believe and we hold to because the testimony of God's word is that God has spoken to his church, to his people. How did he do that? Well, three different ways that Peter lines out. He says, through the Holy Spirit. Prophets Through the Old Testament prophets, God would come in in your Old Testament literature and he would give a, a prophet a message and say, go tell my people that. And those prophets were used as mouthpieces for God. They would go out and they'd say, well, God has given me a message. This is what God is doing. This is what God is going to do. You need to beware because God is working. God is moving. And so God has spoke through his prophets according to verse 2 here in chapter 3. Not just that, but God has spoke through his word. It says there, through the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord. Not only today we have prophets that still speak, not in a prophetic as far as being uh, date setters or being able to tell you what's going to happen in the future, but one of the aspects and one of the characteristics of prophets is people that get up and they can speak, thus saith the word of the Lord. And they're able to say that this is what God's word says. This is what God's word message is to his people. So, just like you have prophets that are still speaking today, articulating, pronouncing, or uh, promoting, uh, proclaiming the word of God, he says God has also spoken through his word. What are you talking about, Spence? I'm talking about his Bible. Sometimes you'll have people that will say, Well, you know what? I pray and I pray and I pray, and you know what? I have never heard God ever answer me. Maybe God has already given you the answer in the Bible. Maybe God has already given it here and all you have to do is read God's word. Well, how has God spoken through his word? One tip, one trick is to sit down, open God's word and read it aloud. And when you're reading it aloud, it's not that your voice is God's voice, but God will be speaking to you through his word. God has told us what he expects. God has told us how we should live. God has told us what his desire is for our lives. God has told us right in his word. God has not left it up for you and I to try to figure out, to decide, or to make up as we go. God has said it. In school, you would get in that scientific class, and they had this scientific method. And the idea of the scientific method was you'd come up with a hypothesis, some type of a guess that something was true. Then you would come around, you'd formulate some means or uh, of ways of trying to test that hypothesis, trying to test that assumption to see if it was true. And then after you would go through the scientific method and you'd go through, the, go through those tests and go through those procedures, then you would come back and you'd look at the evidence and say, so now does my testing and does my procedures prove that this is true? In high school, grade school, they taught you that that's a scientific method. And so therefore, if somebody comes to that assumption, then that must mean it is true. And then you fast forward 20 or 30 years and now you have people that have all kinds of hypotheses and they have all kinds of scientific methods and even after they say that they have done their due diligence this side doesn't agree with this side and they both are fighting back and forth and we as the common people are left trying to figure out well then what is true and what isn't true you can call that you can talk about that in politics you can talk about that in our culture you can talk about that in our society different voices saying this is true and that isn't true I get so tired of listening to the automakers trying to tell me that their vehicle is the best vehicle. It's been voted the number one vehicle for 10 years running. That doesn't mean anything to me. I don't understand which one's the best one and everyone says they have the best one. The reality is, is if you have five automakers, they can't all be the best one. And the same thing happens is sometimes we come to the word of God and we forget that God's word, that God's word is God's word, not man's word. And God has spoken to us through his word. And above all else, it's a matter of what has God said. So he, Peter wants to remind them, and he says, okay, so in the midst of this world, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of all the distractions, in the midst of all the influences, influences around you trying to lead you away from God, make sure that you have confidence and you have hope that you're not left trying to figure this thing out by yourself. God has given you his word. He spoke through the prophets, He spoke through his word. And now you see there in verse two, he also speaks through our spiritual leaders. He says that the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The apostles were the New Testament version of the prophets. The the apostles are though that Christ had set aside during his earthly ministry that they were to be the leaders. They were to be the guides, the directors of that early church model. And so as Peter is writing one of the 12 apostles, he is writing and saying, Hey, church, hey, church, you have hope. God has not left you without a plan. God has not left you without a design. God has not left you without a purpose. God has given you hope because you have God's word before you. I realize a lot of times we don't get very excited about that because we don't read a lot of that. I'm just going to tell you when you get into God's Word and you start reading God's Word, and not just you start reading God's Word, but you start knowing God's Word, and then you know God's Word so you can understand God's Word, and then you understand God's Word so you can apply God's Word, and the next thing you start thinking that God has already figured this all out way before you and I got on the scene. And the problems I have don't take God by surprise. The challenges that are before us as a community or as a church, God hasn't taken, that, that hasn't taken God by surprise. This whole mess that we find our world in and we think, can it get any worse? God says, yes, it can. But the good news is, is there will come a time that it will stop. And you and I can look around and we can take great solace. We can take great hope. We can take great encouragement. Because your creator has spoken to you. I don't know how excited you get about the idea that God has spoken to you. But here in Peter, he's here in second peter he's going to put it in the frame of this concept of 3 if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, you'll see where uh, Paul says, he's, he's writing to Timothy and he says, do not accept a charge against a church leader on uh, except for on the basis of two or three witnesses. You go to Hebrew chapter 10 and he talks about how you judge a person or how you evaluate a person's right or wrong is based upon two or three witnesses. You go to 1 John chapter 5 and he talks about this concept of the fact that testifying to who Christ was, it is testified by the blood and by the water and by the resurrection. In other words, he's saying it's it's testified by God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's this theme that you can run through there and see that when you see these triplets, these threes saying, that is pointing to the surety of the thing or the truthfulness of the thing. Why do I bring it up? Because all through this passage this morning, Peter's going to keep talking about it in the triplets, in the three. So why here, right here in verse 2, he talks about the three that attest, that confirm the word of God. He has spoken through his prophets, he has spoken through his word, and he has spoken through our spiritual leaders. He's, he's giving it emphasis. He's giving it support and saying, so you can be confident that what you have is God's word for your life. Uh, the reality is, is we just don't think this is God's word for my life i come up with my own word for my life and all the things that are associated with that. So Peter says, you have hope today because God has spoken. Not just that, but you have hope today because God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed there in your notes. Well, how has God revealed? Well, God has already told you what is going to happen. It's like you can sit there and you can look at your horoscope. You can go and get your ter- get your cards read. You can go get your palm read. You can have somebody sitting there with that crystal ball. You can have all the things trying to understand what is going to happen. You know, there's some things that are just going to happen because they happen. But there's also some things that God has already said, this is going to take place. Do not be surprised. Do not be dismayed. Do not be distracted. These things will come. God has revealed what is to come before us. What is he saying there in verse 3? He says, knowing this, that that first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Every since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter not only wants to talk to them and remind them about they have been spoken to by God's word, but he wants to give them a hope because they were facing a lot of darkness around them. Questions on gender, questions on identity, questions on sexuality, questions on spirituality, questions on what was sin and what wasn't sin. Question on what was true and what was false. Questions, 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 questions. And he wants to remind them that those things will come. There will be challenges that will come to the church. There will be obstacles that will come to the church. He is telling them, I want you to know these things will happen. He, first of all, talks about them, the questions that will come. He says, there are going to be people that are going to come to you and say, if this God thing is real, then why is God letting this stuff happen? If this God thing is real, then why is all these things taking place over here? If this God thing is real, then why isn't God doing something about it? And so God says, you need to understand that when those questions come, don't look down there and say, oh, the world is over. Oh, poor pitiful me, because God has told you this is going to happen. Sometimes you and I get rocked from our spiritual foundation. Because we expect that Christianity is supposed to be roses roses and daisies every day. We don't expect to get sick. We don't expect to uh, come in, get a bad report from the doctor. We don't expect for the people around us to die. We don't expect for the people around us to suffer. We don't expect for hardships, ridicule, mocking to come. We don't expect for the church to be challenged in its reach in the community. And when that stuff comes, then you and I look around and go, God must be against us. Maybe it's not that God's against you. Maybe it's that we are liked living in a darkened world. Maybe God has told you that there was going to come a time that not just that you will have questions, they will come and they will ask you questions. Well, when is Christ coming back? If God is in control, how will these things happen? And really at the core of it, they're just doubters. You will have the questions that will come and you will have the doubters that will come. He says there in verse three, that scoffers will scoff. The idea of a scoffer is somebody that it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you give them. It doesn't matter how much proof you tell them. It doesn't matter how much it makes logical sense. They're always going, to argue with you I have some family members that I love but will argue all day long that the sky is red and then if you were to change and say okay the sky is red they would start to argue with you and say oh no I said the sky was purple because they just like to argue They just like to to question. They just like to go back and forth. They just like to, they they feel, I I, I guess it's like a favorite pastime of them. It's a hobby of them. But what Peter is saying is that you're gonna have people in the world like that. That it doesn't matter what you do, you're always gonna have somebody coming in, na 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 na. Always you're gonna have the wet water, the, the cold water committee, always trying to put out the flames of the Spirit of God inside you. You're always gonna have somebody showing up and saying, Oh, yeah, but what about this? You're always going to have the scoffers. And so God tells them, God says through the pen of Peter, He says, Remember, church, you're gonna have scoffers, and scoffers. Scoff, because they're scoffers. And because they're scoffers, they scoff. So you're gonna have people both inside the church and outside the church that it doesn't matter whose idea it is and it doesn't matter what the idea is, they don't like it. It's the physical gift, the carnal gift of criticism. Criticism. And, some people just have it in spades. Some people, that's all they want to do. I just want to tell you what I do not like. And I don't want to tell you what I do like. I just want to tell you what I do not like. And you have these scoffers that scoff. And so God says, I am going to tell you that you are going to go through times when people are going to scoff, but not just that, the how they scoff and the things they scoff. It's the way that God is showing this is how they are going to work. They are going to come in and they're going to plant seeds of doubts. They're going to come in and they're going to try to undermine your confidence. They're going to come in and try to say, well, if that was true, then why is it da-da-da-da-da-da? And next thing you know, you and I will be turning around, chasing our tails, saying, Well, maybe they're right. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should listen to them. Could they have any validity? And God is up there saying, what in the world are you doing? I have told you in my word. I have told you what the truth is. I have given you what is right and what is wrong. And I have told you that there will be people coming like Satan in the garden in Genesis 3. And what does he do? He comes to Eve and he says, did God really say? He didn't come in and say, God didn't say, because he knew that Eve would say, oh, yes, he did. He didn't come in and say, well, God is wrong because he doesn't. He just had to plant a seed of doubt. And as soon as he just planted a seed of doubt and made you question then what he has done is taken your attention off of God or off of God's word. And now you're wondering, well, you know what? Is evolution really real? Can people really be made like that? Is that true? Because we've taken our eyes off the word of God. And he tells us, he says, not only God has spoken, but God has revealed. God has told us what is going to happen. Now you may say, well, that's not very hopeful. Oh, that is incredibly hopeful because what that tells me is, is that God is God. God is sovereign. God is in control. And there's nothing that take God by surprise. So I am sitting here and I'm looking around and I'm like, man, God's got a mess. God's got a lot of work to do. God's got a big problem ahead of him. But the reality is, as God has already said this is going to happen so I can have hope because God knew it ahead of time. This isn't taking God by surprise surprise and because God knew it ahead of time that means God knew about that person's sins before that person sinned which means I can hope in that God because that God had it figured out in eternity past that God has it figured out today and that's God's going to have it figured out a million thousand years from now this God is there so I know because God, God has revealed to me that it is true So he talks about the scoffers, the scoffing, the sinful desires. He is pointing us in this triplet of threes and saying, This is how you know that what God is saying is true. And so then Peter says, Okay, I want to remind you of the hope that you have the hope that you have in God's word, the hope that you have in God has told you what is going to happen, but then also the hope that you have that God has moved. That God has moved. So he reminds them, so he, he, he's, he's right into the church and he says, I already know the questions you've got. I already know the, the objections that people are bringing, but verse five, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that earth was formed out of water and through, or earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What does Peter want to remind them of? Peter is wanting to remind them that do not count God out. Do not assume that just because God has given us his word, he has spoken to us, God has revealed what has happened. Do not think that the thing God is sitting there going, well, I didn't expect that to happen. I don't know what to do here. I don't quite have an idea for this. I don't know what is going to take place. He is writing to tell them, remember what God has done. So he takes them back through this creation story. Verse five, he says, remember. They overlooked the idea that all of this came into the existence because God created. All of this existed, not because of your ingenuity, not because of your out of the box thinking, not because of the fact that you created any of this. All of this stuff came because God's, word created. What do you mean, Spencer? So you go back to Genesis 1. It wasn't that God got down with a hammer and a, and a screwdriver and some nails and a saw and he built this thing together. It's not a matter that God sat there and he put together a planning group and he sent, hired a general contractor and said, I want you to go do that. What does the Bible say? God said the word. And when God spoke, creation came into Existence. We're not talking about the power of the man's networking skills. We're not talking about the power of the man's ability to raise money. We're not talking about the ability for the man to engineer designs that someone else implement. We are saying there in Genesis 1 that God spoke and you happened he says, you know, these scoffers and these people out there, they try to say, oh, you know, well, is God really true? Oh, is this stuff really true? Can you really believe this? Can you really trust in that? And he said, they overlooked the fact that the reason they have breath is because God said, let there be breath. And that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that is over us. That's the kind of God that's created us. He says, God's word created, not God's might created, not God's ability created, not God's intelligence created. The word of God created. Amen. One of the pleasures, one of the, one of the pluses of having children at the age that Jaylene and her in is because of some things, some things, and you're going to think I abuse it and I don't. I, I just utilize it, leverage it. If I want something more to drink, I don't have to get up and get it myself. By the word, Luke, will you get me some more tea? Next thing I know, by the word, here comes this pitcher of tea and it's poured in my drinking glass. And the next thing you know, I'm drinking more tea. Not because I got up and went and got it out of the refrigerator. Not because I poured it, but because the word. And that just pales in comparison to the power of God's word. You and I think, oh, that's so cool, I could say the word. But really, we understand how all that works. I tell a child, a child goes and does, I understand the physics, I understand how it happens, I understand how it works, I can explain it all. But the idea that you had nothing and then God spoke and now you have something is unexplainable by our intelligent minds. It is unexplainable by science, it is unexplainable by philosophy, it is unexplainable by rationality, it is unexplainable by logic, it is unexplainable by you and I how nothing and then God spoke and there was something. So what Peter reminds them is don't you, under, don't, don't you start to think that maybe those false teachers and those false idols and those false pagans are true. Do not forget what God has done. God has moved. God has created. And then he says there, And verse six talks about the flood, talks about the flood account. He's talking about was deluged with water and perished. He is saying, This same God that created by his word, this same God also acted when he found sin and unrighteousness on the face of the earth. So not only did God create, but God has acted. So Peter's saying, don't don't get hung up thinking that God can't do what is right. And don't think that God can't do what is just. Look back to the Genesis account in chapter 6, and you will see where God came down. And he saw an entire earth that was wicked. He saw an entire earth that was sinful. He saw an entire earth that was godless in everything they did. But the Bible says there was one man, Noah, and he was blameless and upright in the eyes of God. That is not an excuse for you and I to look around this culture and say, well, they're all bad, so therefore I, I can't help myself. You go back to that account, you go back to the account of Job, and you see where it doesn't matter what the people were doing around you. It matters what you're doing before God. And he goes back and he reminds them about how Peter, or I'm sorry, Noah was sitting there and how God said, all of this has become corrupt. I'm going to wipe off life from the face of this earth. And God flooded the whole earth with a deluge, with a flood, everybody, breathing on the face of the earth died except for those saved into the ark. And Peter says, God can do that again. God can do that whenever he wants to do that. God is not impotent. God is not powerless. God is not afraid of us. God is not setting up taking some political poll. God is not trying to pander or please to the people. That God is God. God has moved in creation, God has acted when it came to the flood account, and then he reminds us that there is coming a day, there is coming a day when God will move again. So that's why he says, that's why he says in verse seven, but by the same, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He wants to remind them. He wants to remind them, church, that you're going around and you're telling everybody, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're going around and telling everybody, this Jesus guy, he came, he died. He was put in the tomb. He was crucified. He rose on the third day. He is now alive. And if you place your trust and your hope in this Jesus Christ, you can be saved before it is too late judgment day is coming hell is real and hell is eternal and hell is a place that lost people go he's saying when you're going around doing that and you're having people looking at you going "Ah, really i don't think this is gonna happen oh you know what i don't think it's real i got all the time in the world i don't have to be ready he says take hope church because not only can god create god can judge but god has foretold you that judgment is coming Quite honestly, sometimes you and I lose the zeal of evangelism because we lose the urgency of evangelism. We keep waking up every single day and every single day we wake up and every single day the sun comes up and every single day we go on about our daily lives and every single day we're like, oh yeah, I know Christ can come back any time and we just keep on moving right down, right down, right down and we keep thinking I'm gonna have another time to talk to that person. I'm gonna have another opportunity to have a discussion with that person. I'm gonna have another opportunity to have that awkward conversation. I'm gonna have another opportunity to bring it up and we got to da, da 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 Peter says, church, be helpful. Be helpful because all these things that you're living for today are not in vain. All these things that you are trying to seek to advance and all all these things you're trying to seek to accomplish, they're not in vain. Be hopeful, church. Your creator will one day judge this And you may say, well, that's not very hopeful. Oh, that's incredibly hopeful for me because what that means for me is because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ because my faith is solidly in the work of Christ that he has done for me because I know according to the scripture that I have been forgiven of my sins. I know that my sins have been washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. I am incredibly hopeful because I know that that day that will come is not a bad day for me. It's the beginning of the best days of my life. At the beginning of the life that I could never imagine or deserved in this side of eternity. And it's a grateful thing to be hopeful and to be expecting and to be be ready for that day. Also, it's a great thing to hope that that when I know that I'm talking to someone else and I'm trying to say, you need to be ready because the judgment of God is coming, I'm just not making it up and I'm just not taking a chance and I'm not bluffing my way through it. It gives me great hope to know when I look at you and say, be ready for when God comes again that I am not just... Throwing out empty words. So he says, be hopeful, church. Be hopeful because God has spoken. Be hopeful because God has revealed himself to us. Be hopeful because God has moved and he will move again. So let me give you just three pieces of uh, what I consider to be good news when we think about this passage this morning. The first thing that Peter is wanting you and I to see is that God's word is trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. So you get to it and you read it and you're like, I don't understand it. It's still trustworthy. I don't, I don't, I don't see how it fits. It's still trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. There's a lot of things, most things in this world that are not from God. And they have all of these underlying intentions. They have all these underlying ideas. They have all of these backdoor secret motivations for why they're doing what they're doing. When you come to God's word, it's trustworthy. So when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory, all and fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us, it means that you're not hopeless or helpless this morning. When you see, but all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? That means that today is a day that you can cry out and be forgiven of your sins. Well, that doesn't mean that it's now you get to define what Christianity looks like. God has defined what Christianity looks like. It's not that you and I then get to just have fire assurance and live however we want to live. God has already told us how to live. But at the same time, God's word is trustworthy and also God's word is truth. We are living in a day an age uh, of so much relativity, so many people trying to come up with their own idea of what is right and what is wrong, Coming, trying to come up with their own spin on things and we need to be reminded when it comes to the things in this world, there are a lot of things that might be good. There are a lot of things that might be preferred. But in all the noise and all the clatter and all the, dis- the distractions are out there, God's word is true. Finally, God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. I've said this before, and I'm going to continue to say it. 20 years ago in Southern Baptist life, there was a fight for the inerrancy of the word of God. People were coming up, and they were asking questions, well, is God's word inerrant? Is God's word infallible? And so you had this entire conservative resurgence that happened in the late 90s or the late 80s and early 90s, and it was all considered to be a battle for the Bible. Jerry Vines gets up at the very beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention. He talks about the Baptist and his Bible. And there's a whole resurgence that started recapturing the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word of God. And today, in most of the churches, especially in Baptistic circles, most of the churches would say, yes, this is the word of God. But the problem we have now is even though we do not dispute and even though we do not argue about, is this the word of God? What we are doing is we are not living as if this word is sufficient for my life. So I look for all sorts of other things saying, well, God's word is true. God's word is inerrant, but it doesn't answer the problem I'm having today. God's word is inerrant and God's word is true, but you know what? It doesn't tell me how to deal with this relationship. God's word is inerrant and God's word is true, but it doesn't give me guiding principles and how to deal with this situation I have in my life. God's word is true and God's word is inerrant, but you know what? God's word doesn't speak to the emotions or the feelings or the problems I'm having God's word is true and God's word is errant, but you know what? God's word isn't enough to help me live faithfully today. And brothers and sisters, all throughout scripture, you see people continue to remind us that God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for faith and practice. If it's enough to get you saved, why isn't enough to keep you faithful? And if it is enough to get you saved and if it is enough to keep you faithful then why do so many of us why are so many of us so complacent with being ignorant about it I'm not saying you're dumb I'm just saying that when you are unaware, you're uninformed, you, you don't understand how something works, it's, it's considered to be ignorance. It's kind of become a pejorative, but ignorance is just saying, I don't have the information that maybe someone else does. So if the Bible is enough to get you saved, and if the Bible is enough to keep you faithful, and if the Bible is God's word about himself to his creation, and if this is God's word to us, then why are we so satisfied with being ignorant about it. Maybe because we have denied the sufficiency of God's word. And maybe because we've decided to put our hope in a lot of other things that aren't from God. So my question, before we bow our heads, what are you hoping in this morning? You Bow your heads with me.